so excited to have my friend, Pastor Sean Nefstad, uh, today as the guest on this show because, listen, y'all, he has a book that just released that you absolutely must read. We're going to talk about this book, uh, but before we do, Sean, what I always like to do is have my guests introduce yourselves just, you know, beyond the the credentials. We know you as the pastor. We know all the incredible accolades that you have, but tell us about where you grew up and, and about your childhood and how you got into ministry. Hmm. Well, I'm fifth generation pastor on both sides of the family, and it's kind of like the mafia, honestly. Uh, <laughs> I was born in the Philippines on the missionary field. Uh, my, my parents moved us to Ohio, and he passed there for about three years and then moved to Oakland where I was raised uh, for my adolescence. And I'm kind of a Bay Area boy, you know, a little bit of here in, in Oakland, a little bit in Sacramento. And uh, my wife and I have been married for 22 years. We have four girls and we actually just had three birthdays. We, we could not have had our daughters any closer. They were four daughters under the age of two when they were first born. You heard me correctly. It's a two-year-old, a one-year-old and twins were zero. And uh, you've seen a double stroller. We had a triple stroller and one on the leash. <laughs> but yeah, we started the church when I was 24 years old, uh, 17 years ago. Can't believe it. And and really, this book, "Don't Quit in the Dip," is our story of feeling so stuck in life, and um, that's kind of our. It's been our journey in a nutshell. So uh, you, you say that you are a fifth generation uh, preacher. That, that, that feels like a lot of pressure to me. Um, did you always know you wanted to go into ministry or were you one of those kids that was like, I want to chart a different path? How, how did that <laughs> Well, I, even when I was five, six, seven years old, I thought that's probably what I'm going to do one day. What my grandpa has done, my dad, my uncles, my cousins. And then I was about 15 years old at a camp and you got to love youth camps. It doesn't even matter like where it is or how bad it is. I don't know why God always shows up. And I really had a moment and an encounter with God where I told the Lord, I said, God, if, if this is the family business, I can't do this. And that's where the Lord really spoke to me and said, there's a legacy here, but there's also a unique calling. And the ministry that we've had over the last you know, two decades has had resemblance of some of our family, but it looks very different. And I feel like everybody needs to go get your God said for whatever you're going to do. You know, just go back to calling, because if you don't have that moment where God called you, you'll quit really easy. That's such a good point. And, and this is why I love I love your story and, and your book, because I think it's applicable to people, whether they're in ministry or not. And so what I want to do is I want to just start pivoting to your story. So uh, you, you go into ministry, right? And, and you assume that you're just going to grow and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be thousands. Not quite. So take us no. back to the beginning of your ministry and, and what that journey was. Well, I, I was kind of insinuated in my realm, in my sphere, that you just build a great church by preaching real hard and having great worship. And that might work for a handful of people in the world, but it was not working for us. We grew the church to 300, which is a great size church for it. I mean, that's three times the national average. Um, but we plateaued for seven long years. And I mean, zero growth to the point where I'm banging my head up against the wall. 
Because here's the big question. What do you do when the dream inside of you is not matching the reality that's in front of you? And, and this goes across the board, whether you're trying to lose weight and get in shape, whether your marriage is on the rocks or about to divorce, or maybe you just come out of a divorce and you feel like damaged goods. Maybe your kids are not doing what you feel like they should be doing, or you're single and you're looking for Mr. and Mrs. Right, and you're tempted to settle for Mr. and Mrs. Right now instead. Hello. It could be anything, depression, fear, anxiety. Every one of us has this idea of a dream or what you feel God told you. Well, there's always a dip right before you get there. The problem is most people quit in the dip and they never make it. And really, I mean, you know this, Nona, successful people, they're not people that were exempt from the dip. They had a dip too. They just didn't quit in the dip. And that's why we admire them because we're like, oh, they are where I would like to be. But would you like to go through what they went through to get there? So my my the book that we just just came out, Don't Quit in the Dip, but you can buy anywhere books are sold. It really is that message. I mean, we grew to we we grew to 300 and plateaued. And I can tell you, like there's a chapter in the book where I opened up. I'm under my desk or like folded up like origami, just weeping. And I'm under my desk because I don't want anybody else on the staff to see me. You know, when you've hit your lid and you, and you accept it and you start to think there's no way I could ever live beyond here. And I had just preached a message of faith on the weekend. And now the pastor's under his desk weeping and I'm having a conversation with God. That's real. It's a real conversation. It's like, God, I'm not seeing it. You know, how come everybody else is getting their dreams fulfilled? That's kind of what it feels like. You know, it's almost like when you stand at the, the baggage claim at the airport. And if you've ever lost your luggage, you know, this feeling, everybody's getting their bag and the carousel just keeps coming around. You're like, is my, is, where's my bag? That's what it felt like for me with, with the promise of God. Like everybody else is getting their promise. How, do, where's mine? Did it get lost somehow? So frustrated, so hurt. And so ugh, just, I mean, frustration never stays put. It always slips into depression, into hopelessness and despair. And I was begging God, please just show me somebody to take this church. I will gladly pass it on. And he didn't show me anybody. We started a prayer meeting. And I wish I could say it was super anointed. It was like eight of us and six were my family. <laughs> they had to be there. <laughs> but we started calling on the name of the Lord. Jeremiah 33, 3 call to me, I'll answer and I'll show you wonderful and marvelous things. And I was telling God, I'm not seeing wonderful and marvelous. I'm seeing mediocre at best. But in that process, God did something in me that I was in the dip. Lessons I needed to learn in the dip in order to get out of the dip. And those are the keys that I want to help everybody watching with that, that God's given me some key truths to help you get out of the dip. Mm, this is so good. We're going to, we're going to talk more about those. I want to, I want to dig deeper into this idea of depression, because I think as, as Christians, for whatever reason, we believe that admitting that we are frustrated, admitting that we feel sorrowful is somehow, um, less than, than having faith. And, and it's like, it's taboo, you know, how, how don't talk about being depressed. You should place your faith in God. 
let's be honest, right? Um, there are many people who have faith in God who are struggling with, with broken hearts and dreams that haven't um, emerged yet. How did you work through that process? I mean, you just said you, you just finished preaching about faith and then you're under your desk crying. Um, how, did you, how did you come out of that? Well, first off, you need to know that fear and depression do not have to be a life sentence. Now, I don't know who that's for, but you feel like this is your lot in life and that you're stuck in the dip. M many people are decorating the dip like it's their promised land. Like, I'm just going to move my address to 555 Dip Street. You know, this is where I live now and I'm never getting out. But you can make it out. And in the book, I kind of talk about this because I struggle with fear and depression. They're ugly cousins. I mean, I'm talking about I had an ulcer in second grade. I worry dominated my life. Um, and then I started getting these pains in my stomach at age 13 and then all the way to 25 years old. So my life was dominated by fear for the first 25 years of my life. And I don't mean just like a little struggle. I'm talking about it galvanized. It dominated me completely. Couldn't make a decision. And I'm leading a church now at 25 years old. And I went into the hospital with these stomach pains because they, they increased with time and got more intense with time to the point where I'm on the floor in the fetal position, just in agony. I went to the hospital for three weeks, nothing to eat, no ice chips, went down to 125 pounds. And the doctors diagnosed me with ulcerative colitis. That is, I've talked to a woman who's had children. She said, she said, not me, she said, the pains of that is worse than childbirth. And so I threw that in my wife's face. <laughs> don't you talk to me about pain. You don't even know. No, I didn't do that. I, <laughs> she would have slapped me. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. But I'm here to tell you, it was a real deal. Like fear, depression. It, I was in the dip. For some of you, that's the that's the name of the dip that you live in. And then my daughter got it, Nona. My daughter got that. My grandma was a warrior. My dad was a warrior. I was a warrior. And I'm, I'm grateful because God healed me. And I haven't had a pain in 17 years. To God be the glory. He is the great physician and he hasn't closed up shop. But my daughter started struggling with fear, you know, and it's normal for a, a kid to struggle with it. But now she's six, seven, eight. And I'd ask her, what are you afraid of? I don't know. And I like, as a parent, it breaks your heart. And I said to her one day, I'm so sorry, baby. I think I gave this to you. And she, you know, didn't understand. She was like, why did you give this to me? <laughs> I said, not like that, not like a Christmas present, but I think it's passed down, but we're going to break it. And here's how we broke it. And in, in, the, in the book, I have a chapter called Bye Bye Fear. It's, it's, I wrote this book with tears. I wrote this book with, with people like you in mind who was watching. Because for several weeks, we banked on the verse, perfect love drives out fear. See, listen, fear cannot cohabitate where the love of God resides. So I began to sing all the songs that you could sing a cappella about the love of God. I begin to just remind my daughter how much she's loved. I mean, she could not go out of the house. She was so afraid. And we would sing these songs out. And, and God's love literally does not suggest. It doesn't recommend fear leave. It comes and serves fear and depression and eviction notice. 
And God broke that spirit of fear because it is a spirit. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, sound mind. And she's now eight, 19 years old, a, a speaker, a preacher. I mean, she is an incredible leader and she is so bold and does not struggle with that. The crazy thing in, is, Nona, is a lot of people that struggle with fear and depression and worry and anxiety, when they're young, people just tell them, oh, you'll grow out of it. No, you don't grow out of that stuff. It's a spirit. So you don't grow, you, you don't grow out of it. You grow older and switch fears, you know? So that's why part of, the, part of the book is dedicated to people who feel like God's taken too long. And it's dedicated to people who are struggling and feeling like they're in a dip and can't get out. You can make it out. This is Rich, uh, Sean. I'm, I'm curious, for a lot of people who are in that dip, uh, you know, you you naturally start to look over the fence at other people who seem to be more successful, and it can make you feel even worse <laughs> about where you yeah. are. Um, yeah. How what would you say to people who are in that place where they're just like, look at them over there, they're doing so much better, and they're doing so much better. What what role does comparison play uh, in that mindset? Envy and jealousy are two shovels the devil hands you. And you think it's going to help you, but you just start digging the hole deeper. You, you know, you're comparing your everyday life to somebody else's Instagram highlight reel. Because none of us have the perfectly filtered lives that we portray on social Come media. Come on, it's all fiction. There's, even the people you think has it all to get, have it all together, they have at least one area that's not where they want it to be. And I'm driving my Uber driver, and I was shooting some stuff for the book, and he was asking about the book, and explained it to him. He's like, that's exactly where I am. I feel like I'm in a dip in my career. In my And he starts going on and on. And I'm able to share with him some of this. But you have to understand that there are certain things that God's trying to teach you in the dip in order to get out of the dip. It's not just like, get out of the dip. There are lessons to be learned. And in college, there's a saying called C's get degrees. What that means was uh, we we didn't care about the curriculum or learning anything. We just wanted to do the bit, the bare minimum to get by. And unfortunately, we've taken that same mentality to God. You know, we even say things like this. Don't you test me Boom. on the freeway. Don't you test me. And we say that to God now. We say to people, don't you push me to my limit. Don't you push me to the edge. And God now gets that from us. Don't you test me. And we have forgotten that there are certain life lessons that cannot be achieved any other way. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, hey, count it all joy whenever you go through trials, knowing something. That's the secret. Another chapter in the book is the secret of knowing. Knowing that, that, that all this testing is producing patience. Which, by the way, just because you're waiting doesn't mean you're patient. Knowing that, that patience, uh, uh, the testing leads to patience, and let patience have its perfect work so you can be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. I wanted to be mature, complete, lacking nothing, but I didn't want to test. I, I hate flying. Um, I love getting to the destination, but I hate the small seats. You know, you recline in the seat and you go, this is what you do. You recline from here to here. And, and then you have this tiny bathroom and somebody else is trying to put a, you know, a love seat up in the overhead compartment and you're breathing recycled. I hate the whole process. Many of us, we want the destination without the flight. We want maturity and we want our destiny without a dip. And it does not happen. There are lessons God wants to teach you in the dip 
so that we can become ready for where God wants to take us. Mm. How do we expect to get to our destiny if we reject God's curriculum? Mm, mm, mm. And I would say this, believe that God is at work. You know, my wife is a classically trained opera singer. And I took her to an opera one time. It's called Phantom of the Opera. And then she schooled my novice mind and said, it's not an opera, it's a musical. And I'm like, well, they need to take it out of the title then because that's confusing. And we sit there and it's beautiful. If you've ever seen it, it's an, it's an amazing musical. And um, we, we watch for about an hour and the curtains close. And then I'm like, that's a weird place to end. And she says, uh, that's intermission. We stand up, go outside, stuff our face with popcorn and soda, come back in 20 minutes later, and nothing changed. Curtains still closed, nothing changed. But when the curtains opened, everything changed. I'm talking about new set, new design, new cast, new actors. I had no idea that while we were out stuffing our face with popcorn and soda, there was an entirely different team working behind the scenes that I couldn't see. Let me say it this way. Just because you go, don't see God moving doesn't mean he's not working. He is working behind the scenes. And Paul says again, the secret of knowing, we know, like he's expecting us to know this stuff, that in all things, God causes, forces, the good, the bad, the ugly, to work together for good to those who love him. And we're called according to his purpose. Just be, listen, don't confuse your intermission with your finale. <laughs> it's not over. And for everybody who feels stuck in a dip, that's why you need to go get this book. Because I wrote this in pain about our story and our journey of feeling stuck for seven years, 300 people. We start the prayer meeting. The church takes off reaching thousands. I mean, this is B.C. before COVID. Uh, reaching th- thousands of people on a weekend multiple services multiple locations where would all of these people be had we quit in the dip there are people on the other side of your dip they need to hear how you made it through and when when you're when you're talking to somebody you don't want to talk to somebody who didn't go through anything who didn't have a dip you want to talk to a marriage who was on the rocks and they made it you want to talk to somebody who is wealthy and they made it. They weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Like teach me, show me. And, and, and leadership is learned not on the mountaintop, but in the dip. Man, this is good. I, I love something that you said, um, cause you're right. Uh, the, the dip is, is a process. It's, it's a place where we can learn, where we can grow, where we can be challenged. Uh, and if we leave it prematurely, what we essentially do is we abandon the very thing that's necessary for our growth. One thing you've said to me before is you had to learn about essentially kind of multiplying yourself. Like you had to learn about empowering leaders. Um, would you speak to that? Because I think there are people sure. who may be in a situation now, they may be a pastor or a business owner or whatever, and they're doing everything themselves and they're just worn out and they're frustrated and it's not working. But you said that some of what catalyzed your growth was actually empowering other people. That's something you had to learn to do. Absolutely. And that that all comes from, in the book, we, we kind of discuss our so, whole story. But I, I was a one-man band. You know, you've seen a one-man band, a one-man band somewhere in downtown. 
any city. He's playing the guitar, the harmonica. He's got his knees banging, you know, cymbals. And it's impressive at first glance. But the closer you get, the more pitiful it is. And I wouldn't have that guy lead worship on a Sunday. But that was me setting up, tearing down, singing, leading worship, offering announcements, preaching, prayer team. It was the Sean show. And it was dumb. So I began to develop leaders. See, we always, we always want to find leaders, but leaders are not found, they're developed. And so I began to release people, but in their passions, in what they wanted to do. Because if you do what you're created to do, you don't burn out. The more you do it, the more you energize, you get energized. So I would begin to release ministry. I'm less busy now of a church of you know 5,000 or more than I was of a church of 300 because we now have 2,500 people serving on teams and they are now able to be fulfilled because they're using their gifts to make a difference. And that is the highest need, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's the highest need of the human heart is to make that difference. So that was a huge, huge thing is developing leaders, releasing them into their passions. And, um, you know, I was stuck in the dip of trying to do it all. So whether you're in business, whether you're in, you know, church life, it's the same. We have to, we're called to develop people. Something that uh, what you just said sparked in me was a question of, um, of humility, because you, you mentioned, you said it was kind of, it was kind of the Sean show. And, and you know what I've seen, I've experienced this in my own life and career is sometimes we end up not empowering others because doing it ourselves is what leads to the praise, right? It's like, oh my gosh, you give so much. Oh my gosh, you're always the first one here. You're always the last one to leave. Oh, it's you. What role did um, humility have to play in you being able to emerge out of, out of that dip? Well, you have to realize that when we stand before God one day and give account for what we've done, he's not going to look at us and say, oh, great, you did it all. We love the martyr syndrome. We love to, you know, I'm doing, I put in long hours. It's just me. We tell our staff, if, if you do the job, you're going to get fired. It's not about doing the job. It's not about, it's not about getting the job done. It's about getting the people done. Can you develop people? Our role, our call on the earth is people. I don't care if you're a businessman or a church person. Our role is to, to, is to reach people. We're all in the people business. And many people find themselves stuck in the dip because they are trying to do it all. And you, you do have to humble yourself and then get a strategy on how to help people find their passions and then release them in their passions. It's kind of like, you know, if you have, if, if anybody out there has this mom who is an amazing cook and, she, but you don't know how to cook, I'll tell you what happened in your family. You would try to come in the kitchen and mess around. And she said, just, uh, just let me do it. And she grabbed the spatula. She grabbed the bowl because she knew you were going to make a mess. And it's just easier. It was, it's going to take time if I teach you. And it's uh, uh, just let me do it. I'll do it quicker. That's what, that's what leaders do who don't develop people. They think it's going to take too much time. It's going to make too much mess. Of course, raising sons and daughters is messy but man there's a joy in being able to see sons and daughters fulfill their destiny mm, i think you're right um sometimes when we 
when we take over and we think we're actually uh, helping ourselves, we end up hurting ourselves because we're we're spending time that we could invest in other things. Um, I want to, for my last question, I want to kind of just pivot slightly because, you know, right now we've been in this really challenging time as a society. I think there are a lot of pastors who have been grappling with um, how to address issues of injustice, and they have experienced people leaving their church, you know, as they've spoken out about racial injustice. So they're kind of experiencing a dip uh, in some ways. Maybe they had a successful thriving ministry and people are like, you know what, if you keep talking about this race thing, I'm gone. Um, what would you say to them? I mean, to people who are just struggling, they want to say the right thing, they want to do the right thing, but they're feeling challenged that if I yeah. do this, people will leave or they'll walk away. Um, what would you say to them? It's funny because I even tried to talk to the publisher and say, can we please not launch this book right now in COVID and all the racial tension that's going on in the world? And they said, no, Sean. It's supposed to come out right now because we are in a worldwide dip. I mean, you think about the pandemic of COVID, the racial uh, tension and the injustice, everything. It's like everywhere you go, people are in a, in a dip and they need keys to get out. And I would say to anybody, we have to go back and read the Bible and try to be as Christ-like as possible because Jesus was always crossing racial boundaries. To the woman at the well, you know, the woman at the well question, like, what are we, what are you talking to me for? Like, we don't talk to each other. He's like, oh, no, that, that's not how this is going to go. And, and then Jesus comes in Ephesians chapter two and three and says, hey, I'm breaking down the middle wall of separation. We just taught verse by verse through Ephesians. And so this is fresh in me. The Jews and Gentiles hated each other. I mean, so much injustice. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, I tore down the wall. I'm now your peace. And I'm bringing the two together to make one new humanity. I believe we are on the brink of the greatest revival we've ever seen. And if you study revival, every time there's chaos, there's always an incredible revival that's after that. But it's going to take us to love people the way Jesus loves them. The Good Samaritan, we've talked about this on the Faith and Prejudice show panel that I was on with you, uh, your team a while back. And, you know, you think about there's four different groups of people in that story. You know, the Good Samaritan's there, a guy was beaten within an inch of his life, four different groups of people in that story. He nurses the guy back to health, different race of guy. They hated each other, typically. And he says, I'm going to give you oil, wine, take you to an inn, I'll pay the rest, just take care of him. Nursed him back to health. And then Jesus asked the lawyer who was, you know, trying to have, have the discussion, he's like, who, who was his neighbor? The lawyer's like, I guess the guy who took care of him. Yeah, because a, a Levi and a priest walked on the other side. I'm just thinking in a season like this where people are hurting, you can't look the other way. I have four daughters. If one of them's hurting, I don't look at them and say, hey, are you over it yet? Like, get over it. Like, let me just look the other way. No, First Corinthians teaches we're all one. And if one of us hurts, all of us hurt. The four groups of people very quickly in that story there were the robbers who saw him as someone to exploit. And then we have the Levi and the priest who saw him as a problem to avoid. Then we have the lawyer that saw him as a topic to discuss. But then you see, then you see the, the good Samaritan saw him as a, as a person to be valued and loved. You know, you think about Jesus leaving the 99 to go after the one. Uh, he didn't say the 99 didn't matter. <laughs> but, but here's, let me add this. 
going after the one never makes sense until you're the one. And I think there's a few of us watching today that are pretty grateful that Jesus did what he did to come after us. And then he turns around and tells, tells Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, you know, I love you. And Jesus says, I'm not taking your word for it. I'll know that you love me. You feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He's saying, I'll know that you love me when you get involved with the needs and the nurture of people. And a busy guy like me can get so busy doing earth ministry related stuff. But at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't feel loved by me because God knows how we love him by how we treat people. Wow. Sean, you're brilliant, my friend. This is such an incredible book. Uh, don't quit in the dip. I want everyone to order it now, wherever books are sold. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to be challenged. Um, and I'm just so grateful that you didn't quit in the dip, John. I'm so grateful that you didn't quit because now uh, we all have the opportunity to be encouraged through your story. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure.